Amen. You may be seated. I do invite you to reach for your Bible and turn with me this morning to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 21 for our passage this morning. We will be finishing up the chapter. You also find this on the insert inside of your bulletin along with a brief outline of this morning's passage. Last week, if you were with us, you know we covered the majority of this text uh, dealing mainly with the birth of the promised child, Isaac. Along those lines, we also saw Abraham's need to send away Ishmael and kind of wrestled with the, the weight of that, um, sending this, this son away, but really focusing on this promised one the one to whom all that God had said to Abraham would come true in and through Isaac and through his children. And this, by this, we saw that God is a promise-keeping God. God is one who does what He says He's going to do. He has a long memory. He is very patient. He is willing to play a long game, if you will. And what's going to happen is we're really setting the stage this, this birth of Isaac and the, the sending out of Ishmael really prepares us for what's about to happen in, in just the next chapter, Genesis chapter 22. But before we get there, we have the return of a king, King Abimelech. King Abimelech uh, showed up once due to Abraham uh, moving to Gerar, uh, claiming that his wife was his sister, not for the first time, but for the second time. Now, the king takes her for his own. The Lord sends a vision, or it comes to him in a word in the night, I will utterly destroy you if you do not give her back. And then um, as it goes on, uh, there's an agreement made between Abraham and the king, and she's given back, and God restores him and restores the wombs of everyone in uh, Bimelech's house uh, as God was punishing them. But this king has returned. So some time has passed. This king is back. And as we see this second interaction unfold, we'll be confronted with God's divine mercy. We'll, we'll see a, a transformation, if you will, in the life of Abraham. We're going to see him restored in some ways, back to the Abraham of old, back to the Abraham he needs to be to prepare him for what's ahead in his life. And this really is a great catalyst. This is a, a turning point, if you will, in his life and in his ministry. Uh, and it all comes to head in his interaction with his old acquaintance, King Abimelech. And so that being said, let us read uh, of this interaction together this morning. Would you please follow along with me as I read for us the Word of God? I would like to begin in verse 22 and read through the end of the chapter. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, 
that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, the place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the lands of the Philistines. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And just like the Lord provides nourishment for the land and for the animals that live within it, so to this day does he provide nourishment for you and me through his word and by his word. Would you please bow with me as we ask that he does nourish us through his word this morning. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, may we learn from your word. May we be so full of your spirit and so full of your holiness and your grace that even our opponents would be forced to say of us, God is with you. Would we aspire this for our lives and the lives of our children? Would we seek you in all things? Would we have such a trust in you that we could live in foreign lands and yet do so in peace because our God is with us? Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts this morning, that we might receive the power of your word, that we might go forth living changed lives. I pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, the the joy of going through the Bible, um, following consecutive passages, is that it allows us to see a bigger picture a bigger picture that we would miss if we took select text. Um, it would also it gives us the opportunity to not read into a passage our own thoughts, our own opinions, and our own mindset. But rather, we're forced to contend with what is God saying in this story, in this epic, in this season, and in the case of Abraham, in his life. And there's certainly been challenging things in Abraham's life, hasn't there? If we look across his life, it takes us all the way back to chapter 12. He's faced hardship, difficulty. He's made poor decisions. He's trusted in God. He has doubted God. And I'm not going to say that that's not going to be the case from here forward. There's still going to be shortcomings. There's still going to be challenges. There's still going to be moments of doubt, worry, fear, and anxiety. But as we look at Abraham and you think about him and you think of his life, it is characterized overall by faith and by righteousness. We sing the children's song, Father Abraham, as he in a lot of ways is the father of our faith. Ultimately, we know God is the father of our faith, but we tie it back in to this Father Abraham who had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. I'm going to stop there. We're not going to get any more Pentecostal than that. But um, we love Abraham, and we love his faithfulness to God. And we've seen those shortcomings and failures, but here in our text, we, we see a shift. We, we see a mindset shift back to that man of righteousness, back to the man who trusts in his Savior. And so as we look at our text this morning and we contemplate this, this exchange between Abraham and Abimelech, and we see three responses or three actions. What does a godly person do? How does a godly person live? Well, we live by doing three things. We should call the Lord's favor or seek the Lord's favor. We see this in the first few verses of our passage. Secondly, 
We should remember the Lord keeps His promises. We're to seek the Lord. We're to realize He keeps His promises. And then thirdly, we should live in worship. And so to be a person of righteousness, we call upon the Lord, we seek His favor, we see Him as a God who keeps His promises, and we live in worship in what we say and what we do and how we carry ourselves, whatever the circumstance may be. So would you please follow along with me as we look at each of these sections in our text. Let's see the need to seek the Lord's favor. We find this in 22 through 24. Now our passage marks a a, a shift in time. Um, It starts, in fact, with with a clause, at that time. And most likely, this ties us immediately to the previous passage, which was the celebration that Abraham and Sarah had at the weaning of Isaac. And looking back at the, the, uh, the practices of, of people during this time, this is going to put Isaac somewhere between two to five years old. Most scholars um, would argue that the weaning of a child during this time would be about age three. That is significant because, if you remember, the interaction that Abraham has had with Abimelech was a year prior to the birth of Isaac. And so there's been about four years of time between these two interactions, somewhere in that, that range. So we, we know that some time has passed. They've not talked as far as we are aware. And then we know that these kind of parties, these, these camps, if you will, join together for this meeting. On the one hand, you've got Abraham, the man of God, God's prophet, the man of righteousness. And then on the other hand, you've got King Abimelech, King of Gerar, with the commander of his army, Phicol. Now, that's an interesting word. That, that word, Phicol, probably could be translated more as a title than a person. And so it's kind of like saying, and the president was present, or um, you know, uh, the, the emperor Nero was present, where you can use that and mean it something specific, but you could also mean it generally. So we don't know if this was a specific person or just the title of their office. Um, but we do want to ask, why? Why did Abimelech bring the highest commander that he possessed to this interaction? Well, there's some reasons. One, uh, Abraham has kind of got a name in this area. He has gone to battle. He has won battles. He's won battles against very well-known enemies. He has an army. He has followers. He has family members who are very good with the sword. And so it could be Abimelech said, all right, if I'm going into a camp of warriors, I'm going to bring a warrior of my own. Or it could be simply because the king is present. Uh, We think of our own uh, leadership. You, You wouldn't see our president without his bodyguard, right? Anywhere he goes, the bodyguard go with him. And so because Abimelech is out of his home, because he's in this, this territory, if you will, um, even though it's in his own province, uh, he's got Phicol with him. Or it could be, and here's the most likely reason that Phicol is present, Abraham and Abimelech aren't necessarily friends, are they? <laughs> they didn't really part on good terms. Uh, Abraham's God threatened to annihilate Abimelech. Uh, Abimelech in his giving back of Sarah, if you remember in his retort, uh, Sarah and Abraham had lied and said that they are not married, they're brother and sister. And Abimelech said, here, take her back, and here's the price, I will pay it to your brother. 
He didn't say, I'll pay it back to your husband, showing there's a little bit of animosity there because uh, Abraham almost got Abimelech annihilated. So there's not a, 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 this is not a friendly meeting. All of that said, it is very interesting then with the words that Abimelech opens this conversation. Because what does Abimelech say? What does he, he marches up here with this highest commander. He walks into this, this, this meeting with Abraham and his opening line is, God is with you in all that you do. And, and note there in your Bibles, it, it, it's capital G God, at least it should be. He's not saying a God is with you. He's not saying one of the gods is with you. He's saying your God, the God, as we would see it, is with you. He uses the word Elohim here. And we, we will, if you go look up the word Elohim, you can specifically translate it to the God of Israel. Problem is there's not an Israel yet. And so what Abimelech really is saying is the true God, the God of Abraham, your God is with you. And that's a profound statement, right? This pagan king recognizes and affirms God's presence upon the life of Abraham. And let me pause real quick. To me, this is the most profound thing in this whole passage. This really is the most beautiful statement and thought, and it is worth our consideration. Oh, that we would desire to live such holy lives and life so committed to the Word of God, and so committed to following His precepts, and so committed to understand and apply this book to our lives, that our enemies would be forced to utter in their mouth, God is with you. Do we aspire that in our lives? Is that our desire? Could you say of that person you don't like, that, that neighbor that's still cutting into your lawn, or that person that keeps parking their car in the road that's blocking the entrance into your driveway and makes it really hard to back out and you're always afraid, or uh, that person that always leaves their trash out past the trash day in your neighborhood? Um, you know those people that I'm talking about. If you went up to them, or one of us went up to them and said, hey, what do you, what do you think about Phil? Would they say... I really don't like them, but the Lord's presence is with them. Oh, that this would be our desire. Oh, that this would be said of us. Oh, that we would seek this with our lives. That even those who disagree with us most would have to confess that God is with us. That is saying something about Abraham. That is saying something even more about our God. It's so compelling to Abimelech that he then goes on to say, Therefore swear to me by God, and again, capital G God, by that God, the God that's with you, that you will not deal falsely with me or my descendants or my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and the land where you have sojourned. Now why? What, what's driving Abimelech here? Well, two things is, are driving Abimelech. First, Abimelech has dealt with Abraham before. We do not blame him for going to Abraham and demanding peace. Why? Because Abraham has lied. Abraham has put Abimelech's life at risk. Because of Abraham, God closed the womb of everyone in Abimelech's family. And so Abimelech's going, okay, Abraham, uh, if we're going to do this, if you're going to live in my territory, uh, you're not going to lie anymore because I'm not going through that again. And to that end, we can completely respect that, right? We can understand why Abimelech would be like, okay, all right, Abraham, we got we to come to an agreement here. 
But here's what I find even more significant. And, and, and I find it significant that Abimelech confesses that the Lord is with Abraham. But I also find it significant that, Abra- that Abimelech feared the God of Abraham. Right? He, he, he's not really worried about Abraham. He's worried about the God of Abraham. Swear to me on his name. Make an oath to me through him that you will not deal harshly and falsely and improperly with me, my children, or the land. The pagan king affirms the deity of Abraham's God. Why? He's been the recipient of the voice of the Lord. The Lord spoke to him in a, in a dream and a vision through an angel. I will destroy you if you don't give Sarah back. He's heard the voice of the Lord. Not only that, at the conclusion of all of this, Abraham, the prophet of God, the man who wronged him, had to pray over him. And so God's messenger, even an incomplete or improper or, or broken messenger, had to be the one to pray forgiveness for Abimelech, for Abimelech to be restored. Abimelech fears the God of Abraham. And so he says, swear to me by his name. Swear to me by him. And as much as this passage makes us look favorably upon Abraham, how much more does it make us look favorably upon the Lord? Let this be a lesson to us. How is it that a pagan king seeks the favor of the Lord in this manner when so many of us would be tempted to lean on worldly tactics? Abimelech has an army. Phicol's there. The commander's present. Couldn't he have just wiped them out? Maybe Abimelech could have um, made peace with them and then commanded them to leave. Abraham's kind of in his region. It's his land. We could see very easily where this could have turned to worldly tactics but instead the Lord is evoked. And this reminds us, this, this calls us to seek the Lord in all things. Even when there's a brink of war, even when there's chaos abound, even when there's, there's tension, we should seek the Lord. And again, I, my mind goes to, and it, it does often, and I think I've even told you this through the life of Abraham, I think of another prophet of God, the prophet Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king, he hears of the state of Jerusalem. He hears of the walls. And his heart is broken. And what does he do? Nehemiah 1.4 As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's heart breaks at, at a difficult moment, at a challenge, at, at a time of tension, and he prays unto the Lord. And even further, if you follow through Nehemiah, which is a phenomenal book on prayer and on leadership, he goes and approaches the king, and as he's walking up to the king, he utters a prayer. It's almost like under his breath, but it doesn't diminish the, the significance. He is asking for God's help as he's going to this king. Oh, that that would be our state, like Abraham, like Nehemiah, that we would seek the Lord and seek his favor in all things. And we can do this, we can have confidence that we can and we should seek the Lord because our Lord is a God who keeps His promises. And we see this as we continue in our passage. And it takes a pretty jarring shift. You, you, you get the sense that these are two different instances here. You know, Abimelech comes, he, it, you get this feeling that he's storming into the room and Abraham's sitting there and he's like, all right, we've got to have peace, swear an oath. And then it turns. Verse 25, and then Abraham rebukes Abimelech. Wait a minute, what's going on here? This is is bizarre. What's going on is there's a well. There's a well, there's a dispute over this well. And Abraham rebukes Abimelech 
on the improper use of it. Now, why is that significant? It's just a well. <laughs> well, um, these are prime pieces of property during this time. Remember, these are farmers. These are um, shepherds. These are, are people who uh, use the land and feed off of the land and are dependent upon the land. And if you don't have water, you don't live. If you cannot take care of your sheep, of your crops, they die. And so don't think of this just as, oh, it was a well. What, what's the big deal? The big deal was it's a well. This is significant. Um, and, and even more so, this is significant because it says, Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants have seized. So it's not just that it's a well, and it's not just that Abimelech's servants are using the well. They have set up a perimeter and blockaded this thing. They have said, no, this is ours now, and you can't have it. It's theft. It's stealing. It's taking what doesn't belong to them and claiming it as their own. Even uh, to put it even further, and we'll see this just in a second in our text, Abraham himself dug the well. So not only was it one that Abraham's people you know, took or provided, Abraham himself, with his own hands, he dug this well. And so this is why he's upset, and this is why he, he rebukes Abimelech at this meeting. And we could imagine a scenario where this is kind of revenge uh, uh, from what happened with Abraham and Sarah, them getting back at it. You know, you almost got our king killed, and you kind of got all the wombs closed, or everyone closest to Abimelech, and so we're going to take your well. We don't know that from the text, so we want to be careful with it, but we can consider a, a circumstance or a scenario where that would be the case. Unless we be tempted to think that it was Abimelech, and I, I, I believe we should uh, believe him here, Abimelech says, I don't know about this. I wasn't aware that there was a well that my people have taken. You didn't tell me, and I've not heard about it until today. And in this, we, we learn a little bit about Abimelech, don't we? We start to see a pattern in his life. Uh, Abimelech is that person that walks around with his eyes closed saying everything is fine. And in fact, he often intentionally closes his eyes, right? I don't see anything wrong. It's what he did with Sarah. I didn't know that she was your wife. Here, I didn't know that you had a well that I wasn't supposed to have. Who told me about it? How could I know? You know, he, he turns it. In fact, <laughs> this, is, this is interesting. Not only is he ignorant, but he's accusatory. It's your fault. You didn't tell me about it. I didn't know it was there, and you didn't tell me, so how was I supposed to know? Now, Bimelech is a bit dishonest here, but whether he's being malicious or not, and I could make the case either way, listen to Abraham. Abraham is being so patient here. He's being so willing to wait and be kind and be slow to action. This is a significant deal. This is a well. This is water. This is life in this area. It's been taken from them. It's his property. And instead of, again, where, what Abimelech could have done earlier, instead of lashing out, instead of taking charge, instead of demanding what was right, instead of calling down the Lord's wrath, Abraham says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to make a covenant with you. Oh, that's a different Abraham, isn't it? We've come a long way in his life and in his ministry and in his posture. This is not a rash decision. This is not a harsh decision. This is the decision made in love and made fully trusting in his God. 
And just like in Genesis 15, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, we now see Abraham make covenant with Abimelech. He offers unto the king sheep and oxen and seven ewe lambs. And note, this was not a cheap price. Now, Abraham's very wealthy. He's got many, many flocks and and, and many, many servants. But to give this price was an expensive price. But he pays it, and he tells us why. So that you will know, the king, that this is mine. So that you will know. And, in, and this is so significant. This place is called Beersheba, um, which you can either translate to mean well of seven or well of oath. Either translation would work. Well of seven, referencing the seven lambs, or well of oath, referencing this is the place that Abraham and Abimelech made peace. Now, what should we take away from this passage? It's not like we've got people in our lives that we're warring over property rights and um, we're complaining about wells dug and is it yours, is it mine? Um, we don't have nations you know, on our backs uh, threatening to take us over. But what we do have and what we do face often is, are we trusting in the Lord? Are we fully trusting and resting in Him? Again, in uncertain times in difficult seasons, in challenging moments, when life is hard, are we saying our God is greater than this moment? And here's what's beautiful about this. Abraham's not always been able to do that, has he? But here in this moment, he's saying, my God is greater than this pagan king. My God is greater than this dispute. I will give up this financial benefit to me for the sake of my God. I love what James Montgomery Boyce says in his sermon on this passage. Abraham is promoting peace and making this offering to Abimelech. Abraham wanted to dwell in the land in peace and do so in a way that allowed him to keep what was his. He was trusting that the Lord would watch over him in a foreign land where it would have been easy for him to be taken advantage of. But he can only do this because he's trusting in God to keep his word to Abraham. Because here's the thing, and Abraham finally gets it. God has promised to make him the father of many nations. God has promised to bless him beyond all measure. That cannot happen if Abraham's dead. That cannot happen if he has no people or no possessions. That cannot happen if he's being left alone. So therefore, these nations, these rulers, these aggressions, they cannot overtake him. Because God's already said, here's what's going to happen because of it. You know the ending. We're just not sure how we're going to get there. And finally, Abraham's at the point he goes, okay, God, you're right. Normally, I would have stressed out. Normally, I would have been worried. Normally, I would have taken a servant and slept with her and had another child to make them the child of promise because I don't trust what you're going to do. But here he goes, yes, Lord, I trust you. And, and so significantly in the, the final portion of our passage, it turns to worship. In light of all of this, in response to all of this, what does Abraham do? He becomes a man of worship. We have the, 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 the covenant made here at Beersheba. Abimelech and Phicol leave. And what does he do? He plants a tree. Our text says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Comes an arborist. Abraham plants this tree, which is a tamarisk tree. I had to look it up. It's kind of a, like a shrubby thing, like you'll find in mid-Texas. Think of that. Like everything in Texas, you know, once you get past a certain point, all those little short bushy things, those are kind of like tamarisk trees. And these, it's, and you look this up, they're called invasive. They spread. And so it's not that he planted a tree. Some translators actually say he planted an orchard. 
Like he planted trees, plural. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just that he planted a tree or trees. He planted it in worship. Practical application, how should we live before our God? We should all become arborists, and therefore we should worship the Lord by planting trees. Yes and no. There's nothing wrong with that. And I, I come from a line, both my father and my father-in-law work in forestry, so um, I, have a, I have a promotion of this. But what's being said here? What's significant about this? Well, Calvin says it best. The assertion here is that he called on the name of the Lord by instituting a worship of God in order to testify gratitude. God, after he led his servant through continually winding paths, has now given him relaxation in his extreme old age. After everything that's gone, he's gone through in his life, all that he's endured, he realizes God has preserved him through it. And so in worship of his God, he plants these trees and praises the name of the Lord. We need to recognize sometimes God gives this to us, doesn't he? He gives us unusual seasons of peace. And we should use these seasons well when they come. We should thank him and take advantage of them. This is one of the things that we should look at as we look at this passage. Also, we should realize Abraham was creating a public place to worship God. Because here's the thing, if you're going to walk up to this tree or trees and you're going to worship the Lord, people are going to notice. You can't really hide in what you're doing. And it's said that he walked in this, this land for many days. And so over and over again, Abraham worshiped the Lord at these trees. Who would notice? His family, his son Isaac, his servants, his workers, the Philistines, Abimelech's own people would know that Abraham worships God and he does so publicly, unashamed, and in full witness to everyone around him. And then lastly here, um, this is significant because planting a tree is a mark of security, of longevity. It takes time to grow trees. My father-in-law is a forester. He was a mid-tree rotation specialist. Uh, which has to do with pine trees in the south and uh, as they grow from 10 to 20 years. So the mid-rotation, so we're not talking full growth, mid-rotation specialist. Um, but to plant a tree, to think about trees, is to think long-term, is to think long-lasting. And so Abraham is symbolically showing the Lord has taken care of me for a long time and the Lord will continue to take care of me. And much like Abimelech's request, take care of me, take care of my children, and take care of those who's far off. Abraham's saying the same thing. Long after I'm gone, God, may these trees represent you, who you are, your long-standing nature, your willingness to provide, your willingness to endure, your willingness not to forget. So what do we do I believe we take away a desire from this passage to be recognized with our God. Oh, that we would so trust the Lord that we would live in such peace with Him that even the pagans around us are forced to say, your God is with you. I also believe that we should see the Lord watch over us when we are fighting over a resource so precious as water. When we go through difficulties, challenges, and hardships, we must remember that God is with us. And because of these things, and as the Lord reminds us of those, we should in turn worship. We should worship Him. We should celebrate the little victories, the big victories, 
You have prayed today publicly. We all have. Give us this day our daily bread. And so if you don't starve today at the end, we should all commit to saying, thank you, God. We really should. Thank you, Lord, for providing that which we have asked of you every day. Plant those trees. Make those memories. See the Lord's favor, not just today, not just tomorrow, but for the duration of our lives. May the Lord continue to provide for us and provide for our children and our children's children until He comes again. Let us pray. Our Lord, our God, You care about generations. You bring those who are far off. And we, we see in Your Word and we see positively through it the, the, the effect of, uh, of someone trusting in You and how that shapes their children and their children's children and their children's children. Lord, we also see in Scripture what it means to turn from You, to worship the gods of this world, to worship ourselves, and how that affects the children and the children's children and the children's children's children. Oh Lord, for this church, for these people, for myself and my own heart, would we have memorials, would we plant trees, long-lasting testaments to the faithfulness of our God, Would we boldly live in pagan lands knowing that you will provide for us? Would we say that our God is with us wherever we go? And Lord, would we dedicate our lives to you so much so that even those around us who don't like us, who don't think highly of us, would they be forced to admit their God is with them? Would that indicate our lives? Would you make it so, O Lord? I pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.